Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, beginning verse 18 as we continue in our journey through Romans that we began several uh, weeks ago, nine weeks ago to be exact, and we are moving through this book with care and a desire to understand all that God wants us to know about His glory. We don't want to miss that as we look at Romans, that, that Paul's greatest desire in everything he talks about, even in talking about wrath, God's greatest, uh, Paul's greatest desire is that we see the glory of God. We see him at work. We see his promises being fulfilled. We saw that when Paul said in verse 17, uh, 16 and 17, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God and In it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God, the righteousness that is from God. We sang about that this morning in some of our songs about how we stand in His righteousness, stand clothed in that righteousness alone. That it's not by our works, not by our deeds, not by our goodness, but by the powerful, mighty hand of God that we stand because of His righteousness. Listen to the word as I read, beginning in verse 18 and going through verse 23. We looked at verse 18 in depth last week, but we'll read it for context. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and the birds and the animals and creeping things. Let's pray together. Oh God, you are just. You are just in every respect, and and because of that, your wrath is just. Even though we don't like to hear about that or think about that or even contemplate it at all, there is something deep down inside all of us that wants to rub you out of existence and so that we can be our own gods and live life as our own gods in our own way. We treat you as if you were unreal and try to construct an alternative reality through alternative lifestyles and alternative ideas. And the root of it all is a radical defiance of your authority over us. Oh God, your wrath is just. But dear Lord, you are also merciful. Even as we sang about this morning, Your mercy is more than our sin. Even though our sins, they are many, your mercy is more. 
you're merciful even to just alert, alert us uh, as to your wrath so that we may bow before you and receive your pardon. Lord, we do bow before you right now. We affirm that you are real. We affirm your rightful sovereignty over us. Lord, let our life be a demonstration, not a denial of your reality. Oh God, let us, be, let us show forth your truth and who we are in the world around us. Father, we pray this in the holy name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen and amen. <clears throat> Last week when we looked at verse 18, we saw in that the reality of God's wrath. Uh, Paul makes clear, he said, his wrath is being poured out, being revealed, if you will, from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who, who try to, to, to suppress the truth through their unrighteousness and through their ungodliness. We saw that ungodliness is really the attitude that man has toward God. Trying to live as though he doesn't exist. Trying to live, if you will, whether a, a radical atheism or not, but with a practical atheism. And a, a life that says, if he does exist, it doesn't mean anything to me. It doesn't have any effect on my life. It's, a, it's an atheism that says, I am my own captain. I'm my, the own, I'm my own controller of my destiny. And I want nobody else doing that, nobody else having any part of that. And so ungodliness is our, our reaction to him, our attitude toward God. Unrighteousness is our horizontal attitudes, our attitudes toward one another. It, it, it sort of plays out what Jesus said was the greatest and the second greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself is the second greatest commandment. And so in Paul saying this, he's saying, listen, mankind fails to follow, follow through on the two greatest commandments, to love God and to love one another, to love God and to show grace and, and honor to one another. So, so Paul says, I want you to understand this wrath is absolutely real and it's being revealed even now in our culture and in the world around us, which we'll talk about in a few weeks how that is. But I think Paul is anticipating something here. Paul is anticipating somebody saying, but Paul, wait a minute, you, you know, man is really not all that bad. As a matter of fact, I think man is basically good. Man has his good side. He does his good deeds. And, and furthermore, what about those who you're, you're preaching Christ? What about those who have never heard about Christ? How do they stand under the wrath of God? How can it be justified? How can it be a righteous wrath if they've never heard of Christ? They've never believed, been able to have even an opportunity to believe on him. What is it, Paul, that is righteous and what is it that is just about this wrath of God that is being revealed? And, and so Paul goes a step further. And, and in verses 19 through 23, basically... He's dealing with not only is the wrath of God real, but he's showing that it's also deserved. That it's deserved to all mankind. It's deserved to the, to the religious Jew in his day. It's, it's, it's deserved by the religious man or woman in our day. And it's, and it's deserved by the pagan who's never heard or never believed anything at all. And he's going to take those section by section, 
the, the pagan first, then the moralist, and then the religionist. And he's going to show throughout this section in chapter 1 why each one of those is really deserving of the wrath of God. Paul in this passage here is really kind of laying out his case. He's, he, he's doing a, uh, it's kind of crafting a discourse here, almost like a legal brief or a legal discourse to show that man is deserving of what God is showing. He says, here's why. He said, because in verse 19, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Paul there is basically paralleling what the psalmist said in Psalm 19. He's basically paralleling there the, the idea that the heavens are declaring the glory of God. He's saying no one is without excuse because God has demonstrated, God has shown himself and has made it known through all that he's created. You remember Psalm 19, don't you? Those first six verses dealing with, with what we would call general revelation. The psalmist says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the earth. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The psalmist and Paul make clear that God has been since the very creation of the world revealing himself. He's been showing his invisible attributes. He's been showing his power. He's been showing that he is a creative God and a creator God. In everything that you see, the symmetry of the earth, the, the beauty of the earth, all reflect that, all point to that, all say God is real, God exists, and because of who he is and how, how he has shown himself, he's worthy of our praise. He, he's worthy of worship. And so you have to ask the question, I think Paul is anticipating this question here, well, well, if that's true, and it is true, but if that's true, Paul, then why don't all men pursue God? Why don't all men seek after him? If God has been revealing himself from the very beginning of creation, from the time he spoke things into existence, said, let there be light, and there was light, and separated the waters from the, from the land, and, and created animals, and plants, and created man, and, and all that there is. If God has been revealing himself as being real and powerful in all of that, then why is it that man just really doesn't pursue him of his own initiative? Matter of fact, later in Paul, in this book, in chapter 3, Paul's going to say no one seeks after God. No one pursues him of their own initiative. No one just wakes up one morning and says, hey, I think I'm going to go out and see if I can't find God. No, God's been revealing himself. He's been showing himself. He's made known to us his attributes. But mankind has rejected that. The, the whole creation, it seems, Paul says, because Paul is saying because of their evil hearts, because of their unrighteousness and their ungodliness, man basically says, I don't want to believe. 
I, I don't want to believe there's a God. I don't want to put any trust in God. I just want to do things my own way. And, and they're perfectly content, content to say, you know, science can't prove God. And so why should I believe in something that science can't prove? I, I love what Greg Bonson in a, in a, in a debate years ago said to, to a gentleman named Austin. They were debating the existence of God. And, and the, the, the atheist in the debate thought that he had Bonson over a, over a barrel, thought he really had him at the place where he wanted him to be. And, and Bonson said this, let's imagine that a person comes in here tonight and he argues no air exists. Well, let's just imagine somebody came in here this morning and said, you know, I don't believe in air. I don't believe air exists, but at the whole time, he continues to breathe the air while he makes his argument. Bonson says, now intellectually, atheists continue to breathe. They continue to use reason and draw scientific conclusions, which assumes an orderly universe, and to make moral judgments, which assumes absolute values. But the atheistic view of things would, in theory, make such breathing impossible. They are breathing God's air, all the time arguing against Him. Paul is saying that's what's taking place here. Mankind, in their desire to be their own God, to do their own thing, to have things their own way, they they are suppressing the truth of God as best they can through their sinful nature and through their refusal to even see the glory that God has painted all around them. Uh, I don't know about you, but these past few weeks, uh, just going outside around 9 o'clock at night and, and seeing the, the sunsets that have been because of the clouds and the rains and all that have just gloriously painted the sky. You know, the atheist can look at that and say, wow, that's, that's some pretty colors. The believer can look at that and say, wow, what a glorious painting God has done to show us His glory, to show us His power. That ought to cause people to think about the reality of who is there. But Paul says, I want you to know, man doesn't want that. They want to suppress the truth. They want to hide the truth because as long as as they can suppress the truth, they can live however they want to live. But, But he says, listen, God's made, it, made himself known to them. He's shown it to them, and yet they refuse to believe. Paul indicates that mankind, humankind, basically does this in three ways. So there are three ways that, that mankind suppresses the truth about God. The first one is very simple. In verse 21, he says, For although they knew him, Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Basically, what Paul is saying in verse 21 is simply this. They suppress the truth by simply ignoring God. You know, there's probably nothing we as human beings hate any more than just being ignored, right? Just being ignored, having, having somebody around us and us trying to, trying to say something or do something or, or, or trying to have an impact, 
and someone just ignore us. Well, Paul says basically that's what mankind has tried to do to suppress the truth of God's righteous power, God's righteous existence. Basically, they just ignored him. They knew him, they, and, and the word know there, they knew him, obviously is not the intimate knowledge that we know in Christ. Paul makes that clear later. But he's saying here they knew he was there. They, they, they know that he's there, but they refused to acknowledge him as such. They wouldn't honor him. They wouldn't give him thanks. Again, looking at that sunset, it's hard for a believer to look at a sunset like that and not say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for life. Thank you for your provisions. Thank you for all you've done and are doing. And yet many times people look at it and they say, oh, isn't nature nice? Isn't nature beautiful? Mother nature is so grand and great. It's not mother nature. It's not nature. It's the creative reality of the true and the living God. Paul says they ignore him. They just ignore that he even exists, and they will not give him thanks. The second thing that, that Paul says about this is he says after they've ignored him, they really try to take his place. They try to get in his place. In verse 22, it says, professing to be wise, they became fools. Professing wisdom, they became fools. Have you ever known anybody that just really is proud of how smart they are and how wise they are and how much of a grasp on things they have? No humility at all. Just a, an idea of I know everything. That's what Paul's talking about here says, men and women who want to suppress the truth of God, they ignore that God is there, and then they try to get in his place by saying that, that I am wise. The scripture is very clear that, that God alone is wise, that only in God can you obtain wisdom. James even went so far in his little epistle to say this. He said, if any of you lack wisdom, if any of you lack any wisdom at all, then ask of God who is full of wisdom, and he will give it to you liberally. The, the whole concept of wisdom is wrapped up in God. Go to, the, go to the Proverbs, and you find there that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. The beginning of knowledge is, is an understanding of God. Understand that, that the Scriptures make clear that if you want to draw near to him, then you go to him for wisdom. You go to him for what he alone has. Our problem is we tend to think we have it all figured out. Our problem is we think we're smart enough to get through this life. We don't need God or anybody else. We'll do it ourselves. We'll take care of ourselves. And thus, we put ourselves in God's place. Thus, we try to, we try to become our own gods. He'll talk about that later. Or we put other things that, that are, are just inanimate objects, things he talks about here, mortal men, birds, animals, creeping things, all those kind of things. We, we try to put something else in his place. <coughs> Excuse me. The third step on this downward spiral that, that Paul shows us here is found in verse 23 where he says, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images 
resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, they go from ignoring God to trying to be, be themselves in the place of God, to be their own God, to the point where they, they become idolaters. They, they exchange that which is immortal. They exchange that glory that is beyond all glory that could ever be imagined. They, they exchange the glorious revelation of Almighty God for these mortal beings, these mortal things, and they, they put those in the place of God in their lives. How ludicrous is that? I mean, how deceived can man be? And you see this in the world around you every day. You see this everywhere you look. You, you want to see idolatry at its height? Just turn on your television set. You can see it in commercials. You can see it in TV programs. Go to your, go to your supermarket and stand in line for a minute and look at the Look at the tabloids and look at the magazines that are right there before you. It's nothing but idolatry. It's nothing but exalting other things above God and before God. Man and woman are intrinsically going to worship something or somebody. And the sad thing is that apart from the revelation of Jesus Christ, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, they're going to worship themselves and worship idols. That's why I had... Pastor Scott, read that passage in our hearing of the word this morning out of Isaiah, where Isaiah clearly lays out the truth. Well, I lost my marker there. Clearly lays out the truth that all through history, it's not just a thing of our day, it's been all through history that man has sought to, to craft gold and silver or wood or whatever and stand it over in a corner and pray to it as though it had some kind of power. God says, don't you understand you need to turn from your idols and turn to me because I do have answers, I do have power, I do hear, I do act, I do reply. Maybe not like we, always, we want him to always. Maybe not in the same way. He says, I am a God who hears and I am a God who responds. It's amazing how things become idols. And not just bad things. You know, when you think about idolatry, you think about putting something there that's, that's evil or putting something there that's, that's a statue of some sort. But even good things can become idols. I, I think about in the Old Testament, back in the book of Numbers, as the children were being led out of the, the wilderness and as they were going through the wilderness out of Egypt. And as they were wandering around, if you recall, the, the, there came a time when, when serpents came out and bit them and, and as a part of the judgment, it they were dying. And God said to Moses, he said, prepare a, a, a brass serpent and, and lift it up on a rod and everyone who looks at that brass serpent will be healed. So Moses did as he said. He lifted up the brass serpent and those who looked into it, they were healed and a glorious thing took place. And they, they praised God for his healing, God for his protection in that time. But look, 300 years later, 300 years later, you find the brass serpent in the, in the temple, in the, in the place of worship, and it, it's being worshipped. 
It's serving as an idol. It's not pointing to the God who saves and the God who delivered. It's just drawing the people's worship for itself. And God said to the prophet, he said, you go in and you crush that thing. You destroy that thing. Grind it up. Because the people have made what was a good thing and a good provision an idol in their lives. Sometimes when God blesses us, we're... We're tempted to sometimes so focus on the blessing that we forget the blesser. We're so focused on the blessing and what God has given, and we're so rejoicing in that and reveling in that, that we forget the one who gave the blessing. And it's not the blessing that deserves worship. It's the God who gave it that deserves our worship. And that's what Paul is wanting us to see here. Paul is going to show us clearly throughout this, whether it's with the pagan that he's talking about here, or the moral person, moralist, or or the religionist, Paul's going to make clear that God will not be mocked in any of this. God will not give up his glory to anyone or anything. Some look at it and say, well, but you know, what value is it to worship God? I mean, even the psalmist in Psalm 73 got a little bit of a, a time of, pity and said, you know, I look around me and I I see those who reject God. I see those who declare that God doesn't exist and they're prospering. Why, their their eyes are bulging from fatness. They have so much much material things and they're doing well. And here I am, your humble servant, and, and I seek to keep my hands clean and my heart pure and I seek to be what you've called me to be. And yet in the midst of that, I'm hurting and I'm in pain. Have I kept my hands clean and my heart pure for nothing? Have I sought to follow you and obey you and worship you and all these who deny you have it well? And I'm hurting and I'm in pain. I mean, even the psalmist said that. So how can we say that the wrath of God is being poured out when those who want nothing to do with God Seemingly are the ones who are blessed by God, and those who are worshiping Him sometimes are going through very difficult times. I love the way Donald Ray Barnhouse, the pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, put it years ago. He's two or three or four pastors ago of a whole other generation. But he told the story one day about a, a farming community in Pennsylvania. And he told a story about how they worshipped every Sunday and they kept seriously to keep the Lord's day holy. And they would gather and they would worship and none of these believers would do their work on Sunday. They would not do their farming on Sunday at all. There's one guy in the community who had a, a farm that came up near the church and had a lot of land, bountiful land. And every Sunday morning he would come and work that part of his land that was right next to the, to the church. And Barnhouse said he would come and he would use the, he would make his tractor as loud as it could be and he would do all that he had to do, all that he could to make the most noise that he possibly could to disrupt the worship. And it was all the people could do as they were in there, it was all they could do to worship. So they were sitting there trying to. The tractor would, the sound of it would ebb and flow as he moved away and as he came back and he went away and as he came back. Very, very disturbing. And then on Monday through Saturday, he worked the other part of his farm. But the next Sunday, he was right back there working the part of his farm that was right next to his church, the, to the church. Well, I'm sure everybody in the church thought, well, when, when 
when the harvest comes, the guy's going to get nothing. Just the, uh, totally to the contrary. Barnhouse says, when the harvest finally came in the fall and the crops began to come in, this man had a bumper crop. He had more in his crops than anybody else. He flourished with, with his crops like nobody in the whole community did. <clears throat> so he thought he'd take advantage of that to make a statement. So he wrote the local newspaper, and this is what he said in the newspaper. He said, I work every Sunday, and I work my fields other parts of the week. But on Sunday, I work near the church. Every Sunday, right across from the church. Yet now the harvest has come, and my fields have yielded per acre more than anybody else, more than any of those Christians who went to church every Sunday. Now how can these Christians explain this? The farmer asked in this letter to the editor. Well, I'm sure it wouldn't happen today, but this editor was fairly wise himself, and he printed the man's letter in totality, in its completeness. And finally, he's, at the end of it, this wise editor printed one little statement at the end of the letter. He added sort of an editorial footnote, and he simply wrote this, God does not settle his accounts in October. God doesn't settle his accounts in October. In other words, God doesn't operate on the same time frame that we do. He doesn't operate on our schedule, but rather on his own. That will bring him the most glory and ultimately bring us the most good. Paul says, I want you to understand our culture, and we ought not be surprised by this. Our culture is constantly seeking to suppress the truth of God. That They seek to do it by ignoring Him. They, they seek to do it by being their own gods, their, the determinant of their own what is right and wrong. And they seek to do it by idolatry. Whether it's in material things or other people, even their jobs, all of that idolatry, all of that self-centeredness, all of that ignoring God and His truth is an attempt to suppress the truth of God. You see it in our culture. You see it in our courts. You see it in our legislatures, our Congress. You, you, you see it all around us. People who say, you know, I, I just really don't have time or a desire to even think about God. I've got too much money to make, too many things to do. And that's tragic. But let me tell you something more tragic. It's when you see it in the church. When you see it among those who say, we believe in Christ, we have trusted Christ, and yet they seek to suppress His truth, they seek to live for their own good, their own glory, their own pleasure, their own satisfaction, and, and they, they, they kind of give a, an acknowledgement of God in sort of a general sort of way, an acknowledgement to Christ, but basically they say, I do things my way. I'll go to church Sunday. But what I do Monday through Saturday is my own business. 
You see, that's why, that's part of the reason why the world looks at the church and says, so what's the big deal? Their lives Monday through Saturday are just like my life. Why? Why do I need church? Why do I need God? Why do I need Christ? Because what Paul is talking about here demonstrates a genuine lack of faith. Genuine lack of really believing he is who he says he is. Desiring to live it for his glory. Those are hard words. Those are hard sometimes to hear and think about and, and let sink in. But Paul says, I want you to understand this one thing, this one truth, and it is truth. God will not be mocked. And conversion and true salvation in Christ, true Christianity, is found not in how much I give on Sunday morning or how many times I go on Sunday morning. It's measured by how has my life changed? How is my life different? Not because of what I've done, but because of what he's done in my life? That's the real question that we have to ask as we come to these verses. Yes, the culture around us is horrific. The culture around us is idolatrous and is ignoring God and is seeking to suppress the truth of God. Yes. But what are we doing? As we are called to be his ambassadors, his representatives, his truth tellers and truth livers out in the world in which we find ourselves every single day. Let's pray.